0: Good morning. Great to see everybody. Good to be with you. I want to this morning have a special welcome to Pastor Juan and Amanda Sally and their children Joanna, Elena, Lydia, Caleb, and Ariana. Their first Sunday back with us, back home, and. Uh, Pastor Juan is actually making the rounds to all three services this morning, and he'll be leading us in the um, uh, in communion a little bit later. And so he's doing that in all three services. So I'm sure he's making his way back from the land right now as we speak. But we're so excited for them to be back, and I'm sure you can continue continue to keep them in your in your prayers um, because. Um, Many of us know uh, the strains of moving, especially as a family and trying to keep everything going in the same direction. Uh, have you ever heard the old saying, six moves equal one fire? I read a story of a guy one time. He had to move from the East Coast to the West Coast. And he said, I didn't want to fool with it. So I just sold everything. <laughs> I sold all my furniture, sold everything. He just said, I don't want cause it's a it's a uh, very stressful experience. So anyway, we're thrilled they're here and um, excited about uh, what God has in store for us in that regard. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to be just transformed by you through your spirit, through your word. And I pray that your word will do its work in us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue through the letters of the New Testament, today we come to 1 John. And 1 John was probably written by John the Apostle sometime between 85 and 95 AD, at least 60 plus years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus back to heaven. And I want to, again, as always, refer you to if you didn't see that, if you want to get a little bit bigger picture uh, to this past week's Bible Talk. It's online. There should be a a link in your sermon notes section of your bulletin to that Bible Talk. And what I try to do in the Bible Talk is I try to do like a 30,000-foot flyover of the document of the book, and then when we get to the sermon, do like a 5,000-foot flyover. And focus and drill down on some specifics as relate to what God would have for us from His Word. So, <coughs> today what we're going to do is we're going to drill down in an area that I think is characteristic of this letter of John, and that is this. If, if you read the whole document and you look at it in context, there seems to be a pattern that develops of John giving evidences of legitimate, of legitimate Christ followers. In other words, John gives characteristics of people who are really following Christ legitimately, and either directly or by inference, those characteristics don't apply to those who say they're following Christ, but they're really not. And that seems to be the contrast and much of the motive for the letter, much as the case was the case with Jude last week. And he gives several truths in this letter about what it means to follow Christ and what does that actually look like. But we're just going to highlight about three of them, And you can perhaps find more as you read it yourself. But the way we're going to discover these is by answering or asking and answering three questions. The first question being, what is the basis of our faith in Jesus? Well, I think John answers that. And he answers it in the first sentences of the letter. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, he says... We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we are what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV, as the old saying goes, but I've seen on television plenty of trials, as have you, and I've also attended a couple in person at least. And one of the things that I've gleaned from that, just from a layman's perspective, is that the most powerful evidence that can be given is eyewitness testimony. In other words, when some issue is being adjudicated in a court in a court of law, the testimony that seems to be the most influential is typically from someone who actually experienced whatever it is they're talking about and whatever it is they're trying to decide upon. Well, notice in these first lines of John chapter 1 how John overemphasizes the fact that he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, and he does so by referring to His senses, you know, that which we have heard, hearing, seen, sight, uh, touched, feel. In other words, over and over again, he talks about the sensory experience of interacting with Jesus Christ on this earth. Not unlike the Apostle Paul in his emphasis when in 1 Corinthians 2, 15, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus and all the eyewitnesses of him after he rose from the dead. Even as many as 500 people at one time or another saw him alive after he rose from the dead. I would submit to you that any event that had 500 people that could say that they saw it happen is going to be a pretty convincing case for that event. Would you not agree? And so what we see here is something that is foundational to the New Testament but I believe contradicts common misconceptions among Christians, at least churchgoers, in America. And that is that somehow our faith our trust our reliance upon our confidence in Jesus is based on something that because we can't see it it's almost like wishful thinking well i'm i'm going to trust this is true just like out of thin air we're grabbing something that we rely on the reality is what we are asked to do is believe the historical record of these eyewitnesses. And we've talked many times before here at DAC, and some may remember and some not, and some maybe weren't here. But we've talked a lot about the difference between historical and scientific evidence because it's common for people to raise objections to the Bible in our culture today to say, well, you can't scientifically, it doesn't stand up to scientific evidence. And we always point out that you can't prove you got out of bed this morning scientifically because in order for something to be scientifically proven, it has to be repeatable and observable in a controlled environment so that an idea can move from hypothesis to theory to law. You cannot prove George Washington was President of the United States scientifically because it's not repeatable and observable in a controlled environment. But you have more than ample evidence historically that George Washington was President of the United States because we have eyewitness testimony, written documentation, records to be consulted, even archaeological evidence and all kinds of artifacts that confirm the reality of George Washington and his presidency of the United States. I don't have any doubt in my mind that George Washington was first president of the United States. As far as I'm concerned, that's a slam dunk. But I believe that because of historical evidence. And when we're talking about the reality of Jesus Christ, we're talking about historical evidence that stands the test of any test of any reliable historical information. Historically, there is hard data, hard evidence from ancient eyewitness testimony to historical archaeological records and everything in between that Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish man living in Israel 2,000 years ago and to top it off that he was revered and worshiped as Messiah of Israel and was crucified by the Roman government and rose again and there were hundreds of eyewitnesses of that resurrection that were documented in their day and documentation continues to our day and there is not one shred of historical data to contravene or discredit that evidence. So when we're asked to believe in Jesus, we're not asked to have a blind faith. We have a faith in the confidence of the reliability of the historical evidence that Jesus is real and He really rose from the dead. So we're confronted with real, hard data, historical evidence that Jesus is everything he said to be, and it's all true what happened to him. The question is, are we going to be willing to accept and rely upon that data and upon him through that information? You see, a legitimate witness is an eyewitness, and John goes to great lengths to overemphasize that his witness is legitimate. So that, by virtue of default, establishes his authority of what he's going to say in this letter. In other words, Jesus is the real thing and John is the real thing because he really interacted with Jesus. And you even take it a step further, if you go through the annals of church history, you discover that Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was a disciple of John the Apostle. Their lives overlapped, and Polycarp learned the faith from John the Apostle, and Irenaeus then was an acquaintance and knew well Polycarp in his later years, and Polycarp testified that John wrote this letter, the same John, that he knew, and he knew that he had written this letter. So those are the kinds of things I'm saying that are historical reliability of these ancient documents and would stand up in any court of law as hard historical evidence of the reality of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing, is that we as legitimate followers of Jesus have a legitimate source of information about the reality of Jesus. It's not a question if, but will we believe the facts as they stand historically. Now, I think that's incredibly important because the fact is, if Jesus is who He claimed to be and He really did rise from the dead, then, hello... That makes everything he said worthwhile, and basically what he claimed was, everybody in one way or another one day is going to have to give an account of their life to me. And if you do it right now, it's going to be safe. If you do it later and not now, it won't be safe. The second thing, that question that is raised, that is really the bulk of the content of the, of the letter is answering the question, what's the difference between a fake follower and a real follower of Jesus? I mean, what are some of the differences between a fake follower and a real follower of Jesus? Now, we're not going to focus here, but suffice to say that one of the dominant characteristics that John highlights in this letter is agape, it's love. In other words, an agape is the love of God that is a self-sacrificial life lived in the best interest of God and other people. That's essentially what agape is. And John just says it straight out, and we've got an, a, a, a paraphrase of it on the signboard out front. John just says in 1 John 4:20, you know, don't say you love God if you don't love the people you can see. If you don't love the people you can see You're fooling yourself and lying to yourself and everybody else if you say you love God who you can't see. So that's one of the characteristic foundational realities of what it means to be a true Christ follower is to live a life in the interest of God and others as opposed to ourself. Now, if that doesn't make us stand up and think, because I'll tell you, self-interest is so deceptive, it wears religious clothes, it it tries to look like the real thing, and even deceives us into thinking it's the real thing, and that's what John was dealing with with the people that were behind um, his letter in terms of those that he was trying to protect the church against. So love is an essential. But today, what we're going to do in answer to this specific question is John also points out that the Christian's relationship to sin is one of those critical components, and we're going to drill down on that. And I'm going to read two passages, and we're going to compare and contrast them and see what we can learn about how our relationship to sin legitimizes or delegitimizes whether we have a genuine relationship with Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. Now, let me stop right there. That clearly, that clearly infers that it's possible for the Christian not to sin, right? I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. See, if if I if I'm looking here and I look over at you and I say, "Now let me tell you something. You be sure don't you dare jump up and touch that ceiling. Don't you dare jump up and touch that ceiling." That's a nonsensical statement. There's not one person in this room who can jump up and touch the ceiling. Would you agree? Therefore, that's a nonsensical statement. It's not irrational, it's just nonsense. Why? Because I'm giving you a command that that you couldn't even do if you wanted to. You couldn't even break if you wanted to. So what I'm saying is, if it weren't possible for Christians to live above sin, it would be nonsensical For John to say, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse 13, I think it is, that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will will provide a way out that you may stand up under it. In other words, nobody is ever captive to sin as a believer. The grace of God in you is stronger than, it's it's greater than all our sin. That's the reality. Now, continuing. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So, yes, it's possible for us not to sin, but it's also possible for us to sin is clearly <coughs> what he says in the next line. Possible not to sin, it's also possible to sin. He himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So John is saying, I don't want you to sin, that's why I'm writing to you, but in case you do, don't forget, Jesus is there. Okay? Now, just a few paragraphs over, let's go to chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Anyone who continues to live in Him will not sin. (coughs) But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know Him or understand who He is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Now, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, don't forget about Jesus. Anyone who continues to live in Him will not sin. Anyone who keeps on sinning does not know Him or understand who He is. On the surface, it appears that John is talking out both sides of his mouth because on the surface, as you look at those two statements, they are contradictory concepts. But that's when you need to dig deeper. You know, I'm always amused at people who say, I've had anybody say this to me in a long time, but I've had people say before, well, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions. I'm saying, well, show me a few. And then the room goes silent because they don't know what you're talking about. That's just a line they've heard somebody say, and they're just parroting it 90% of the time. Now, there are certain passages that are difficult to reconcile, but that's why we're called to study the Bible. And in this case, that's where we land, because the key is in the verbs. In chapter 2... When John says, I'm writing this to you that you may not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The verbal form of sin there is a tense of a verb that... Let's use the analogy of walking. I'm walking down through here, and I, poop, I trip, and I fall. It's, it's an event. <clears throat> In chapter 3, the verbal form there is... You don't just trip and fall, you lay on the floor. You never get up. So in other words, what John is saying is that, yes, it's possible for Christians not to sin, it's possible for Christians to sin, but it's not the dominant pattern of their life. And he says in chapter 3, if it is the dominant pattern of their life, they're not a legitimate Christ follower. And the key is the life of God is a life that cannot tolerate sin in ourselves. Somebody sent me a meme, uh, I guess it was this week, because they've heard me say so many times that it's interesting in church how much people confess other people's sins versus their own and how enjoyable that seems to be. And somebody sent me a meme where this fellow, the very wise pastor, one of the parishioners, came up to the pastor and says, "Now, pastor, you need to preach about sin more." Wise pastor looked at the person and said, "Well, tell me which sin is most problematic for you. What sin do you struggle with more than any other?" "Oh, I'm not talking about my sin. I'm talking about everybody somebody else's sin." "You know, well, whoa, whoa, pal, we got a problem with that. You know, let's talk about yours." The point is that when we turn to Jesus and rely on Him and we receive the life of God, it creates in us the value system of God toward ourselves and we are repulsed by our own sin. And the healthy place is to be more repulsed by our own sin than sin in anybody else's life and we're hypersensitive to sin. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, former president of Asbury University from many years ago, once said, If holiness is anything, it is sensitivity to sin. If holiness is anything, it is sensitivity to sin. Through the Spirit of God and the life of God, the life of Jesus becoming our life, we can smell sin a mile away especially in our own heart, and more importantly, we're repulsed by it. We're repulsed by it. Listen, if you're a believer, and you haven't had victory, and you're disgusted with yourself about habits in your life and practices in your life that aren't any different than before you turned to Jesus, that's a great place to be. I pray you'll get so disgusted with yourself That you'll stop trying to carry that dead body around and you'll throw it away and walk with Jesus. Because that's what baptism is all about. We are buried with Christ and raised to a new life. There's a death that occurs when we surrender to Jesus, there's a death that occurs. And so many times we still think we're dead. And we don't realize we're brand new. That's the reason Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to commit your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. In other words, get into reality as to who you are in Jesus not who you used to be in your old sinful self. A legitimate disciple is not dominated by sin. And then thirdly, a third question that is really intimately related to the second is, what do followers of Jesus have that unbelievers do not? Now you say, wait a minute, we could be here all day. I mean, listing all the things that are different about the life of a believer and the reality of a believer, of a, of a follower of Jesus, and those that aren't. We could be here all day. But I believe there's a line that John answers that question for us in a line in chapter 5 that really summarizes what the, the big difference ultimately is. John five twelve to 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. It's great connection with your song this morning. So that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, what this emphasizes is a common misconception among many in the church is that we interpret the phrase eternal life to mean duration. Everybody's gonna live forever somewhere. The Bible teaches the immortality of the soul. Eternal life has nothing to do with duration. Eternal life has to do with quality. You see from God's perspective people that aren't in Jesus and Jesus in them are dead right now. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Read Ephesians chapter 2. People outside of Jesus from God's vantage point, yes, they're conscious and breathing, but they're dead because they don't have his life. His life is called eternal life in the Bible. And the idea being, just like with Adam in the garden. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, From the day you eat of it, it says literally, eating, uh, dying, you shall die. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they didn't fall over dead. But what happened, they lost the life of God. They didn't have God's life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly in John chapter 10. He wasn't preaching in a graveyard. He was talking to people that are as alive and breathing as we are. God made us for Himself. You were built and designed to be the dwelling place of God. That's why God made you, because God wants to live in you. By His Spirit, we messed up His house through sin and made it impure for Him, the holy God, to live in. Jesus, as the God-man came, died on the cross and cleaned his, clean, made cleaning house possible, and we call out to him, he cleans the place up and comes to live in us, and we're restored to the relationship with God that we were designed to have to begin with, and just like a gasoline car can't run on diesel, you can't run on your own power. You've got to have the life of God to truly live. And Jesus alone provides that. And people who follow Him have the life of God. And just as He said in chapter 3, that that people uh, who are born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. It's the life of God that gives us the desire of God, the love of God, the priorities of God, the hunger for God, that's the life of God. I tell you, I never when, when the Lord took hold of me, I didn't have to have anybody ask me to read the Bible. I didn't have to have anybody ask me to go to church. I didn't have to have anybody ask me to do any of that. All of a sudden it came from the inside out and it wasn't just an obligation, it was a desire. It was a hunger. Hallelujah. That's the life of God. You see, a legitimate life is the life of God himself exclusively given through Jesus, and it's a life that beats death. I remember that great line from D.L. Moody, the great evangelist that he once in Chicago said, he said, you know, one of these days you're going to read the obituary in Chicago. What is it, the Chicago Tribune? Is that the big paper in Chicago, the Tribune? You're going to read the D.L. Moody's dead. He said, don't you believe word of it? I'll be more alive then than I am now. Because you see, the life of God is a life that's bigger than death. And Jesus' resurrection proves it, and He promises to give it to us. And lastly, He gives us, just as John talked about a a sensory experience with Jesus, touched, saw, heard. Jesus, at the Last Supper, at the Passover meal, took a portion of the Passover Seder, and He took the bread and He says, this is my body given for you. He took the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And guess what? We taste, we smell, we touch. You see, Jesus has even left us evidence of Himself to share in Him.